0: Friends of God, we've just heard a beautiful passage. I would say we heard the most beautiful passage that one can pull out of that letter, that first letter, called Corinthians. That letter, intercepted and shared with the world, was written probably 20 years at most after Paul launched a Christian community in that port city. And he would launched that community in that port city only a very few years after Jesus' ministry, death and resurrection. So just think of that. We've, We've got our hands on and we've just taken into our ears words that were penned within like 25 years of Jesus. Such beautiful words. It's incredible that we have these. Here in chapter 13, Paul shares these most beautiful and profound words about agape love, deep commitment love. This is not eros love. Attraction. This is not filial love, friendship. This is something deeper. The content of the letter reveals that it's not the first time that Paul has sent correspondence. There's a reference to him sending an earlier letter. And though today's passage is about love, most of this letter, and it sounds like the earlier correspondence, so most of this letter, meaning chapters 1 through 12, and the earlier correspondence, is filled with Paul addressing bickering power plays, and morality concerns that have been told to him about stuff going on in Corinth. It takes up the vast majority of the content of the book up until this point. If you've ever thought, I wish I lived closer to the time of Jesus because it would be so much easier to keep the faith and make all the right decisions, this letter will challenge your thinking. Close to the time of Jesus close to the outpouring of the Spirit, and still lots of problems and reasons for doubt that the efficacy of the Gospel message will hold going forward. In this young church there are that young church directly connected to the Apostles, there's different factions with different groups inside the church claiming either Cephas, which is Peter, or Paul, or Apollos. Those three didn't want to have conflict with each other, but the Factions within were very clear on who their boss was. And there are concerns in the community that some people are living like kings already, as if there's no more struggle, no more journey on this earth. They're resurrected and fully realizing all things they the chosen few are. Paul says, I'm still struggling like mad. I don't know why you're acting like it's all reconciled and resolved. There's a lot of questions too concerning sexual relations. Is Jesus coming immediately? Should we be concerning ourselves with marriage or not? And some sexual choices were being made in that community that felt really troubling to the health of the community. And there were cliques forming in the church, not just about which leader they looked up to, but also around social class. Those cliques were there before the church started, and they continued in the church. People were eating the Lord's Supper at different times based on social factors. This was of grave concern to, to Paul. To the point that he says about the way you do the Lord's Supper, I do not commend you in that regard. There are questions and vehement differences of opinion too about things like circumcision as a requirement or non-requirement for Christian faithfulness. Should Christians eat food that has been sacrificed to idols by people with different faiths within their community or should they not? It's okay to have differences of opinion here but Paul's saying you've let this stuff drive huge wedges within the health of your community. Paul also expressed frustration that believers were taking each other to civilian court over matters that were frivolous when they could have been working these things out within the life of the church. They're looking bad to the wider world by doing these things. And then finally, in chapter 12, Paul talks about the importance of the diversity of spiritual gifts in the church. And we could, if you just look at 12 by itself, it's, it's a beautiful text about the church is made up of a diversity of gifts. There's There's a head, and there's ears, and there's eyes, and you all need each other. If anything's missing, there's a shortcoming. But in light of those first chapters, the reason Paul is highlighting this is because that's not how things were going there in Corinth. Instead, some gifts were being considered highly esteemed, and other spiritual gifts were considered unimportant. Paul brings up chapter 12 as a corrective to that. There's a good chance that if you've heard chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, this passage about love, it was at a wedding, maybe your own wedding. And it is a nice passage to read there, as lots of things expressed in the text about what love is are indeed the very things that, if practiced well, give a relationship staying power. It's a wise time to reflect on these things, on day one of a commitment. Even if the text, sometimes in the context of a wedding, gets blended with eros, attraction, which is inevitably and hopefully part of what a wedding symbolizes too, right? But I'd like to suggest today that this passage might be best read one month into marriage, or one year into marriage, or on the fifth anniversary, or after a couple of kids, or after a job loss, or a season of frustration, or a time of disappointment in your relationship. Stuff comes up in life, and there are ethical questions, and there are times when you feel your gifts are undervalued by your partner, Times when your sexual relationship is off, times when you have different opinions about what the future should hold, or how to navigate a particular circumstance. This is when 1 Corinthians 13 can help the most. Paul addresses years of struggle in those first 12 chapters. And finally, in chapter 13, he calls the church back to the love that has been since the beginning of the Christian movement, and since the beginning of time, since God and Christ. Are sharing the same thing. After the transitional phrase that, oh, and the transitional phrase that Paul uses to move from the 12 chapters of difficult stuff into the chapter of hope and promise is this Let me show you, or let me remind you of the still more excellent way. Hadas, the way. It's the Greek word for way. Jesus' church from early on was called the way. Acts 9, Acts 19, Acts 22, Acts 24. In all of those passages, the Jesus movement is called the way. In the gospel, John the Baptist says, prepare the way, the hadas. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the hadas. It's no accident, it seems to me, that Paul says this phrase, let me show you the still more excellent hadas, before launching into a chapter that describes the way that Jesus embodied in his own behavior while living on earth first part of chapter 13 is tied directly to the discussion of spiritual gifts and the tendency of the church in Corinth to favor some gifts over others so chapter 13 verse 1 through 3 highlights some of those most highly esteemed gifts and you can feel it right he says these gifts are worthless if not shaped by the way of love the gift of tongues that connects you to mortals and angels if you could speak in tongues that's a pretty big deal right connecting to the heavenly places Paul says worthless without love the gift of prophetic power and the ability to understand all mystery that sounds good but it's nothing without love total self sacrifice for the sake of gospel for the sake of the gospel without love it's a waste that's what paul says in 1 through 3 so what does this way of love this christ way actually look like What is this way of love that redeems and reconciles and protects for the good the church as it was intended to be, the spiritual gifts as they were intended to be, relationships as they are intended to be, and each person as they are intended to be? Thankfully, Paul gives us the answer right here in verses four through seven. And I'll ask that the slide be put on the wall and it can just remain up for the rest of the sermon. Love is patient, love is kind, Love is not envious, or boastful, or arrogant, or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love is. Friends, I do not wish to pretend that this is a magic formula that saves every struggling marriage or fixes every problem in a contentious church, or makes every stressful job suddenly manageable. And yet I would say that I cannot think of any better words that can give broken relationships and communities a fighting chance of making it through the most challenging times. I think these words are incredible. I like to think that these words might have helped the church in Corinth when they received this letter. And I imagine that they did. Because, you see, chapter 13, 4-7 makes life better here, right here in this church, in our church family, consistently. I want to say to you this morning, dear church, that I think the way of love is practiced here regularly. We're fortunate that we're not a church that has lots of issues like those that Paul tries to address in chapters 1-12. through 12. It would be nightmarish to be in constant conflict about major ethical issues. But it wouldn't be true either to suggest that we haven't over these past 20 years and that's as much as I can comment on, that's the part we've been here, that we haven't had our challenges. We are not always on the same page, person to person within the church, about matters of social justice and how to handle them. There are lots of people here also with diverse gifts and we've had to navigate how to highlight each other without getting in each other's way. That's not always easy. We have sometimes taken stances that have led to volatile responses from others in the larger community and some people have thought we should back off and not go so fast and others think we should go faster. Sometimes I have, I know, gotten slightly off track with the ever-extended possibilities that are hard to say no to but that sometimes create imbalance and stressful seasons in our church life. Sometimes here people get their feelings hurt, sometimes here people feel left out and forgotten. While our first 12 chapters are much less stressful and less soap operatic than Corinth, it's okay to admit, friends, that we are a beautiful yet still imperfect community, always in need of mending and molding communally. And there's a central reason that we've come through bumpy times and rough patches well. And I think it's because we keep turning to the way, as described in chapter 13. We turn to it, recommit to it, and try to get grounded again in agape love. Into our own moments of confusion or trouble, we've chosen to embrace the way of love collectively. Love here has been patient and kind, not envious, boastful, arrogant, or rude. We've learned to listen to each other's ways and not just our own. We've learned to be slow to anger and to not hold grudges and to not gloat when our when, when our way proves right. We rejoice in the truth, even if someone else, not ourselves, was able to unveil that truth to us. And friends, this is good news. The way offered up by Paul to the church in Corinth, which was really just an offering up of the way of Christ Jesus as he lived it out upon the earth, it works. If we live this way, we have the best chance of experiencing shalom, peace, the beloved community, in our relational lives. And I could end right there today, friends, simply stating that our church, though human and imperfect, has chosen to walk the path of agape love. But that's not where I felt the Spirit asking me to stop this morning. And so I'll go on. For you see, I feel like I've seen living the way of agape love work so successfully in our church life and in the personal relationships of the people I've watched embody it here that I just trust it can transform our behavior in wider circles. And maybe by our agape love behavior in wider circles, we can influence the behavior of others in those circles. And that's where I want to go today. I want to ask you a hard question, friends. Do you, in the world outside these walls, extend the same kind of agape love that you practice so well inside this community? Let me put it this way. I feel our nation right now is going through an extended period of incredibly unhealthy divisiveness. The divide between the liberal and the conservative camp has grown so extreme that people are automatically dismissed if they find themselves aligning with one side or the other. Many people have retreated into happily dwelling firmly in one camp. I am with Biden. I am with Trump. Because if you don't land in one camp or the other, then you're nowhere. And then you're like on an island unto yourself, which is kind of miserable also. People retreat into defining others really quickly. They are anti-vaxxers. They are drinking the liberal Kool-Aid. I am with CNN with a touch of MSNBC. I am with Fox. The deeper the divide, the less real conversation happens. The more assumptions are made and the less progress is made. Each side cancels the other half of the country. Whoever is elected president feels this immediately, dismissed and despised by half the nation, and nothing gets done. And nobody feels hopeful. We are nationally in a morass of 1 Corinthians 1 through 12, I believe. And it impacts our daily lives, our national identity, and our global policies. It's bad, friends. It's really bad. And so I ask you, each and every one of you, and myself, are we extending the same kind of agape love outside these walls that we do inside? Do we exercise 1 Corinthians 13? And do we encourage our church to exercise 1 Corinthians 13 collectively in our engagement in the world? Do you exercise agape love on Facebook? Do you exercise agape love when speaking with Christian friends who are in faith communities that? tend to fall on a different part of the political spectrum? Do you exercise agape love, the way of Christ Jesus, in attempts at genuine reconciliation? Do you, after blowing your top about something, have the humility to take a step back, collect yourself, and apologize? Do you promote nonviolence through your way of being a follower of Jesus Christ? Or do you let yourself land in a camp, a camp that lets disgust with another camp fester? I've heard an awful lot of blame laid on Mr. Trump for creating a spirit of divisiveness, and I do not disagree. But we are a people not shaped by any president, but by the way. And I feel like I, personally, didn't spend enough time trying to get to 1 Corinthians 13 during his presidency, and I haven't spent it in the past year since his presidency ended either. While CNN and NBC continue to fan the flame of polarization just as much as Fox, that stuff goes on and I don't feel like I've done enough to say anything into the mix. Friends of God, I want to encourage you this week to look and see if there's a way that you can step out of 1 Corinthians 1-12 through in your own life as you engage with the wider world, the outside the church world, and start living into First Corinthians 13. It just might make a difference. Let's get better at living into the way in our interactions in the world, especially with our enemies. That's the mindset fitting for a people who claim the Hadas, the way of Jesus Christ. And isn't that exactly what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was suggesting, really, when he spoke of the beloved community? Wasn't he suggesting a a community shaped by agape love? I wish he'd called it the, 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 I don't know how you could get agape in the term beloved community. It's a cool enough phrase as it is, but it's that, right? He's suggesting a community shaped by agape love, shaped by 1 Corinthians 13. As it says in the King Center website, King recognized that conflict was an inevitable part of human experience. King understood 1 Corinthians 1 through 12. But he believed that conflicts should be resolved peacefully and adversaries could be reconciled through a mutual determined commitment to nonviolence. No conflict, he believed, need er erupt in violence. And all conflicts in the beloved community should end with reconciliation of adversaries cooperating together in a spirit of friendship and goodwill. After the US Supreme Court decision desegregated buses in Montgomery, King didn't gloat about it over everybody else. This is a quote, the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men." The beloved community bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love... Agape love, we are told by the Apostle Paul, never ends. It can't end, or it wouldn't be agape love. It's unstoppable. It's the kind of love that Jesus Christ embodied and that he lived, died, and rose to secure. It's the kind of love that God embodies. And we're invited today to really embrace that kind of endless love. Paul says there's lots of stuff that's going to come to an end. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge, they're all good gifts, but they're temporal. The very nature, however, of agape love is that it is not temporal. Even while we're going along, stumbling along through this world, only seeing dimly, there are some things that we can participate in already that will abide, things that will stand the test of time throughout our development, and they are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these abiding realities is love. Amen.